Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. for that opportunity, although I'm told that all three pastors went to Tuba City for missions. I'm not quite sure what that means, but uh, I appreciate the opportunity to be here. I've always wanted to come and visit Harvest, and uh, now I had a, a chance today. And it's great seeing uh, so many kids uh, as part of the worship service, especially the adult worship service and the family feel. I think it's wonderful. Uh, I guess it's a good thing, but one good thing about, uh, some may say the only good thing about me preaching is that I do not preach long. After... Uh, <laughs> Years of youth ministry, I've been trained by young people to keep sermons short, so I rarely go over half an hour. Uh, In fact, uh, at Moody where I teach, I teach the 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, and 11 o'clock time slots. And my 8 and 9 o'clock slots are about half full, but my 11 o'clock slot is overflowing. It's a waiting list. So finally, one semester, I asked the students, why is that? And they said, well, because you only give 30-minute lectures. And at 11 o'clock, we get out at 11.30, we beat the rush crowd into lunch. And so that's why. It's just wonderful motivation for learning. But uh, I do tend to keep it short. But the bad part of it is that I've trained myself to speak very fast. So I'm going very slow at the moment, but I will speed up a little bit to crunch the material in. As well, the, the material tends to get a little bit packed, so you'll have to stay with me, hopefully. But if you forget... Everything else, that you should remember that Jesus grew up taller, stronger, and wiser. <laughs> that was a great sermon. That just phrase is going, repeating over my mind over and over again. So as long as you remember that, that's great. So God has blessed. Will you pray with me, and then uh, we'll start. Father, thank you for calling us your children, sons and daughters. You call us disciples, followers of Christ, citizens, saints, but I would trade it all away to be called a child. For you are our Father who walks with us, who speaks to us, who guides us, and who meets our every need. If only we would open our eyes. So Father, it's my prayer this morning for all of us that you would open our eyes a little more to the glory of who you are, that we might see what a precious thing it is to be called children of the Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Several years ago, Leadership Journal interviewed Eugene Peterson, an author, translator of the Bible, the message, a pastor to the pastors. And they asked him, what can a pastor do for people who come for help with addictions and abuses that were not common a generation ago? It's almost like another form of addiction every few months. Instead of answering the question directly, he made the following insightful comment. I know this is a mixed up, difficult, damaged generation. But it's arguable that the main difference today is not how much people are suffering but how much they expect to be relieved from that suffering. 
He goes on to speak of the past generations, the plagues, the disease, the loss of children and in infancy, the hardship of life, how they suffer just as or much more than we do in this generation. Yet this generation somehow has the mentality that if something is wrong, that it has to be fixed. That for every problem we face, that there's a solution. That for every question we ask, that there has to be a nice, tidy answer. That somehow we are entitled to comfort and convenience. That we deserve a pain-free life. What an indictment. The interviewer then asked them, what do you do when people assume that you're called to meet their needs and to relieve their suffering? To which Peterson responds, why am I a pastor? What is my primary responsibility to this congregation? It is to stand up in a pulpit every Sunday morning and proclaim, let us worship God. Several days after I read this interview, I came across this passage from John Piper, The Supremacy of God in Preaching. And he writes, people are starving for the greatness of God, but most of them would not give this diagnosis of their troubled lives. The majesty of God is an unknown cure. Preaching that does not have the aroma of God's greatness may entertain for a season, but it will not touch the hidden cry of the human heart. Show me. Thy glory. I believe Peterson is right, that Piper is right, that our longing to see the glory of God is far greater than our longing for a stress-free, pain-free life. That if I unveil the desire for relief from pain, that underneath is a deeper, hidden cry, God, show me thy glory. Because I believe that God has created each one of us in such a way that even if you are totally relieved from suffering, unless that relief is grounded in a rest in the beauty of God's glory, you will never find true peace. Because the deepest cry of the human heart is not, God, why am I suffering? But rather, God, show me thy glory. The central themes of worship and suffering, I believe, are found in John chapter 4 in the story of the Samaritan woman. Most times this passage is preached from the perspective of evangelism, and, and there may be some hints on how to evangelize, but this passage is really about a woman who is suffering, who is longing for the life that she thought she would have, but when she grows up, it's not where she thought she would end up. And yet, the text continues to call her from inner suffering to outer worship of God. The problem is that when we read this text, that we read it isolated from other texts. There's an advantage to breaking up the Bible into different chapters, but the disadvantage is that we read these chapters in isolation from each other, and I do not believe you can understand a Samaritan woman unless you compare her to Nicodemus. The stories are side by side for a purpose. So if you like, you can turn to John chapter 3 and John chapter 4. You don't have to because I know the stories are very familiar and the sermon is designed so that you don't have to open your Bible at all. So when we look at Nicodemus, 
when we look at the Samaritan woman, there are a number of obvious distinctions. Number one is the gender distinction. Being a woman, she was a second-class citizen of the day. She could not serve on a jury in a legal setting. There are parts of the temple that she could not enter into where men are allowed to enter into. Jewish men used to pray, Thank God I was not born a Gentile and I was not born a woman. Secondly, there's an ethnic difference. that The woman is Samaritan. She's a half-Jew. In other words, she has mixed the pure blood of the Jews with Gentile blood. And the Samaritans thought that they should belong to the Jews. But most of the Jews believe that they belong to the Gentiles. So any contact with the Samaritan was automatic ritual contamination. But third and lastly, Nicodemus was not only a man, not only a Jew, a pure Jew, but more than that, he's a Pharisee, a religious leader who was unblemished when it came to fulfilling the requirements of the law. He was morally righteous. But this woman was immoral. The text says that she had five husbands, but the Greek could also be translated, she had five long-term relationships. And we find out in the story that the, woman, the man that she is living with currently was not her husband. No matter how you dissect the passage, it is clear that this woman is immoral. And the story confirms this, but she comes to the well when it's the hottest part of the day. Most women draw water early in the day or when the sun is setting. She comes during the hottest part of the day, and she comes alone. Most women drew water together because it was a social event. That was a time when you talked about your children, your husband, and you try to match make and you share gossip back and forth. She comes alone to this well because she's been ostracized by her own people. The gender difference, the ethnic, the moral differences, the story is very clear that Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman were different on every level. But you cannot stop there. Because if you read the surface text, Nicodemus comes out ahead. But if you read underneath the surface, the Samaritan woman comes out ahead. A number of different ways. So Nicodemus encounters Jesus in the middle of the night. And as you may have heard, the Gospel of John has a number of different double meanings. Right? He came at night. In other words, literally, he came at night because he didn't want to be discovered. But he also came in the darkness of his ignorance. Because here is a leader of Israel who could not tell how one can enter into the kingdom of God. And yet the Samaritan woman encounters Jesus in the brightest part of the day. Nicodemus belongs to the group who had faith in Jesus, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them because he knew their hearts. So if you're in John chapter 3, if you go to the last two, three verses of John chapter 2, we find that now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man's heart. I believe Nicodemus belonged to this group, because when he comes to Jesus, he says, look, we saw these signs. We saw these signs, and he wanted to know more. But with the Samaritan woman, he entrusts himself to this woman and her people for two days. 
So at the end of the story, remember with the dialogue that's occurred, and then the village people come out, and the village people say, stay with us, stay with us. And he stays with them for two days. There's a contrast. Even in the dialogue, there's a number of differences. In Nicodemus' account, he speaks three times. But in each time that he speaks, there are less words. So in the Greek, if you count the words, the first time he speaks, there are 24 words that Nicodemus uses. The second time he speaks, 18. The last time, four words. It's almost like Nicodemus is disappearing in that dialogue until the dialogue becomes a monologue. In fact, the second half of John 3, it's only Jesus speaking. Nicodemus has disappeared. But that's not the case with the woman at the well. For her involvement from the very beginning of the dialogue goes to the very end. She is an active participant in this discussion. In Nicodemus' account, he calls Jesus a leader, a teacher from God, and Jesus was certainly that, but far more. But never in the conversation does God or Jesus ever reveal his identity to Nicodemus. And if you read the rest of John, what you'll find out is that the truth that will set you free is the answer to the question, who am I? But for the Samaritan woman, she, she, she notices that he's a Jew, and in the middle of the conversation perceives that he is a prophet, and the discussion of the Messiah comes up, to which Jesus says, I am the one you speak of. Jesus gives the divine, sacred name. The name given to Moses in Exodus 3 to this Samaritan woman. And then at the end of the story, after Jesus spends two days with the, the, the villagers, remember what they say, look, uh, they said to the Samaritan woman, now we believe, because not what you say, but because we have heard him for ourselves. And he is the, what? The Savior of the world. But that statement is an affirmation of what John the Baptist preached in John chapter 1. That when he sees Jesus, he says, behold the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world. If you look underneath the text, this woman comes out far ahead of the righteous Pharisee. But there is one more central difference. While Nicodemus is the one who came to Jesus at night, Jesus is the one who came to the Samaritan woman. Because if you look at verse 4 of chapter 4, the text says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now, it's sort of ironic because righteous Jews never went to, through Samaria when they went to Galilee from Judah. Because if you're in Galilee, Samaria is here, and then Judah is up here, the quickest route is to go straight through, but you might come in contact with the Samaritan. So righteous Jews cut across to the Jordan River, went up the Jordan River, and cut back across. But the text says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Why? Because I believe God looked down upon earth and he saw this woman, a Samaritan woman, an immoral Samaritan woman. And he says, Son, there's someone who's ready to meet you. You have to go through Samaria. Several Christmases ago, my wife bought me uh, an iPod. 
a nano iPod. I guess that was one of those good moments in our uh, marriage, <laughs> getting a present from my wife. Usually after a while, you don't even you know, share presents. But uh, she bought me an iPod. It was great. And I felt so hip. Finally, I had one of those white thingies from, the hair, you know, from your years that I see everyone else do and the students. So it felt good. And I started to uh, download some songs. And you know, the songs that I knew were all vineyard music, Maranatha music, to which my kids said, that's so old, Daddy. <laughs> and so they introduced me to Matt Redman and uh, what, Crow, what's his name? Crowder, thank you, David Crowder. And so now I'm up to speed on the, on the Christian side. And then I thought, you know what, you can listen to Christian music just so much. I need some secular music. So I started downloading some of the songs I used to listen to when I was growing up. Uh, Chicago, right? <laughs> ABBA. Commodores, Bread, <laughs> some of those old groups that uh, and I enjoyed listening to, uh, to those music. And then one night, uh, the kids had an invitation to go over to their friend's house. And it's wonderful because that's free babysitting, right? So my wife and I would decide we would go out and eat. We decided we'd go to Chipotle and uh, enjoy ourselves. And while we were driving there, I had the iPod in the car stereo, and I was listening to the song, and this song comes out. And my wife and I just got mesmerized. We heard it so many times. But there was something about hearing it at that moment. that we're just sitting in the parking lot of AAA, listening to that song. And I'm going to read the lyrics. And the lyrics are from Piano Man, Billy Joel. Some of you may know. If you want, just close your eyes and pretend I'm singing it. <laughs> Far more faith than you might have, I understand, but uh, it really needs to be heard sung. But it's nine o'clock on a Saturday, the regular crowd shuffles in. There's an old man sitting next to me making love to his tonic and gin. He says, Son, can you play me a memory? I'm not really sure how it goes, but it's sad and it's sweet. I knew it complete when I wore a younger man's clothes. Now, John at the bar is a friend of mine. He gets me my drinks for free. And he's quick with a joke or to light up your smoke, but there's some place he'd rather be. He says, Bill, I believe this is killing me as the smoke ran away from his face. Well, I'm sure that I could have been a movie star if I could only get out of this place. Sing us a song. You're the piano man. Sing us a song tonight. We're all in the mood for a melody, and you got us feeling all right. Now, Paul was a real estate novelist who never had time for a wife, and he's talking with Davy, who's still in the Navy and will probably be for life. And the waitress is practicing politics as the businessmen slowly get stoned. Yes, they're drinking a tonic, and they're sharing a drink they call loneliness, but it's better than drinking alone. And it's a pretty good crowd for a Saturday, and the manager gives me a smile because he knows that it's been me they've been coming to see to forget life for a while. And the piano, it sounds like a carnival, and the microphone smells like a beer. And they sit at the bar, and they put bread in my jar. And they say, man, what are you doing here? The song strikes a chord in me. Because I'm just at that age where I'm constantly evaluating my life. Maybe you're there as well. Am I doing the things that are important, not just urgent? How will I be remembered by my kids, by my friends, students? 
Have I made the best use of the resources and gifts and opportunities God has given? Am I really faithful? Or am I just getting by? I ask these questions because in terms of fruitful labor, I feel like I'm on the other side, the other side of the hill. Because, you know, in your 20s, you're, you're, you're busy finishing your education and, and you're just getting established in your career. And then in your 30s, you're trying to raise your kids, right? And you buy a house and you got mortgage and car payments and you're so busy. And then in your 40s, you're worried about paying the college tuition for your kids and making sure you have enough money for retirement. And then the questions begin. Have I really lived the kind of life that I thought I should have, that I dreamed about? Or how different would my life be now if I took more risks, if I worked harder, or if I didn't say that or said this or... If I did that instead of, <laughs> if I married, how often do you sit and wonder what your life could have been? Maybe you're satisfied with where you are. That's great. Maybe there are some of you, when you look back, there are tinges of regret or maybe floods of regret. And I look at this Samaritan woman and I, in my mind, as I imagine her working to the well in the middle of the day by herself, that there's a flood of regrets for never would she have ever imagined that if you asked her as she was growing up, what would you want to become and who do you want to be, that she would ever answer a Jewish man. I had five relationships and the man I am with. It's not even my husband. And God looks down from heaven and he sees this woman, this Samaritan woman, this immoral Samaritan woman. And he says, son, you need to go through Samaria because there is someone who's ready to meet you. Jesus came to his own, but his own rejected him. The king sent out wedding invitations, but those invited first refused to come. Not many of the rich, not many of the noble, not many of the wise were called, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. The kingdom of God belongs to the poor in spirit, writes Matthew, for those who have no other recourse, no other source of hope, for those whose lives are full of regret. This is the gospel that the kingdom of God has come for you. For this story teaches me that God reveals His Son, that He shows His glory, that He gives His divine name, not to the righteous and those who have their lives all put together and the knowledgeable, but the glory of God is seen by the brokenhearted, for those who are in despair, for those who have nowhere else to go.
I worked as a youth pastor for two and a half years in uh, Southern California. <laughs> Wonderful place uh, to live. I'm not quite sure why I moved to Chicago every winter. I'm still wondering and looking for jobs. <laughs> but then the economy there is so bad, I'm not sure if I'm going to go. <laughs> and I worked at uh, Bethel Church with uh, Pastor Peter Son. Took a church of 250 members and uh, grew it to 3,000. Uh, incredible man in many different ways. And he used to say two things over and over again, two things that I, that I remember that's kind of stuck with me. And the first thing that he says, he's talking to the staff, but I hear him talking to me, David, no matter how well your ministry is organized, it really doesn't matter if there's relational conflict. Because if there's relational conflict, <laughs> no matter whether you have a vision statement or your marketing or your, your, your flow charts all cleanly laid out, it won't matter because it'll fall apart. But if you have relational harmony in your ministry, it covers up a multitude of organizational sin. You will always accomplish what God wants as long as there's relational harmony. I found that to be true in almost every ministry I've been involved in. And every time we sent out uh, missions teams, I, I, I relearned that once again. No matter how well you plan it, right? People come back. How was it? Oh, ministering to the people is great. What was bad about it? Well, the person I went with. You know, there's relational conflict. But the second thing that he used to say is that the spirituality of the second generation is just different. And perhaps you could just say this current generation, everyone 35, oh, wait a minute, including me, but, and I'm not 35, but 35 and younger, this uh, current generation. He said that the spirituality of the second generation is very different from the first generation. Qualitatively different. And I wasn't quite sure what he meant by that, but the longer that I reflect on ministry and my own personal life, I think I understand what he means. Because when I think about my parents, and just think about your parents as well, when they came to this country, <laughs> my parents had $250 in their pocket, and they had a $2,000 debt from the four plane tickets that they bought. And they came to a country where they could not speak the language. They did not have a job lined up. They didn't know the culture. They came to this country. My father got two eight-hour shift jobs as a diesel mechanic from 3 to 11 and 11 to 7. For three years, he worked double shift. And then my mother worked as a seamstress. And they poured out their lives, and yet they couldn't quite understand what was going on with me and my sister, because as we grew up in this particular culture, we were changing. And they came to this country for us, and they couldn't quite understand what we were going through. And I remember many nights, my mother would go to my father and beg him, let's return back to Korea. And would frustrate my father because there's no way you can go back. And I remember the worst fights that they had were on those nights. And they were so desperate and the only thing that they had was church. They went to church Friday night, Saturday morning, Sunday morning, Saturday I don't know, church was like their second home. And you know, I, I, part of me got angry over that. But see, now I understand that they were so desperate in this new land that God was all that they had, and so they literally lived at church. And then Pastor Solon says that when he looks at the second generation, he sees two distinct differences. Number one, this generation doesn't give financially. He says that when you look at the average first-generation church, 
first generation give and give and give. Second generation, this generation give out of their overabundance. Yeah. Pain in the butt. But it really doesn't hurt. First generation, it hurts when they give. And the second thing he says is, look, when I watch first generation pray, there's an intensity to their prayer that I don't hear when I hear the prayers of the second generation. I mean, how many times has English ministries have tried to do sabikido, you know, early morning prayer, Saturday morning? You know, and at first you have a few people come, and slowly it dwindles until it stops. That's almost like the pattern every single time. But first generation, he says, and you have a prayer meeting in the middle of the week, and they will show up at 5.30 in the morning, and they will pray, and they will go to work. And it's not just, oh God, thank you for this day. It's this, God, I need you today. There's an agony and intensity in their prayer. There's a crying out. It's almost like pull your hair kind of prayer or in the old Korean sayings, you shake the tree so that's so hard while you're praying that it uproots the tree. It's that intensity that he says is missing in the second generation. And I look at my spiritual life and I have to agree. I don't cling to God like my parents do. Or the first generation. Why? <laughs> the answer is obvious for me. Because I'm not as desperate as they are. I can speak English. I have a profession. I know the culture. I've read the books on marriage. I've read the books on how to raise my kids. Yes, I need God. But I'm not so desperate for Him. You know, one day, Jesus started to give a tough lesson to his disciples. And he started to say, you know, <laughs> you really need to eat my flesh to live abundant life. <laughs> and the disciples, and this is really tough teaching. And among the 70, many of them left. And then Jesus turns to Peter, and he says, Peter, will you leave also? And Peter responds, Lord, where will I go? You have the words of life. That's the kind of faith that's missing in my heart. Maybe you're wondering, God, why are you not more real to me? Why don't I see your glory more? Well, maybe it's because we're so worried about relieving suffering and fortifying our lives so that we can control the things that will happen, rather than crying out, God, show me your glory. Because if that's your prayer, it's because you have experienced God in such a way that you're able to say along with Peter, Lord, where will I go? You have the words of life. There are two cries of our heart. God, why am I suffering? And God, why don't I experience your glory more? To move from the first to the second is to realize that in spite of all the advantages that we have as a generation, how desperately 
needy we are for God. That's where it starts. Heavenly Father, we come to you this late morning having opened your word and my feeble attempt to explain it. But I thank you, Father, (laughs) that your spirit is alive and he is well and I trust that he is flowing through this sanctuary because of your word. The wind blows where it blows. We may not see it, but we see its visible result. Father, I pray that your spirit will be set free this morning into our lives and into our hearts. That the doors that we have locked and closed and say, do not enter to you. I pray, Father, that you would shatter those doors and enter into the very recesses of our hearts and minds and our lives and change it and transform it. So that our fear is not how much we will suffer, but our fear is that we will live a life that did not reflect your glory. Help us to be more afraid that we have wasted a life rather than living a convenient one. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Father, remind us how dangerous it is to pray, God, all I ask is more of your Son. For wherever there is more of Jesus, there always seems to be more of suffering. But remind us, Father, as well, the glory that awaits for those who faithfully endure, that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor heart has imagined the glory that awaits for his faithful children. For we pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.